Well, hello, Eddie. Um, we met over Twitter, and this is very exciting. A crossover podcast YouTube extravaganza. Um, we got Eddie here, and I am Zach, and I do a blog and talk about what angers me at certain times, which is always po politics. And uh, Eddie's a smart guy that I've met over Twitter, and he educates me on macroeconomics and uh, we wanted to talk about crypto, Bitcoin, Doge, whatever, because most of the time, I think most of the people who talk about those things are crackpots, but Eddie is actually super smart. So I want to hear from him. Awesome. Yeah, we were, um, um, I, this is the first time doing something like this with Zach and, uh, you know, we interact on Twitter every now and then. And I, you know, I noticed that he's interested in economics, um, which is what I love to talk about on Twitter. Um, so yeah, so yeah, we just we said, hey, let's let's do a let's do a video. <laughs> and Eddie, Eddie is um, on Twitter. He's not only smart, but he's also nice, which you don't find anywhere on Twitter. That's 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 a unicorn. And so I am very excited to talk with him today. Um, Eddie, what's your take on cryptocurrency? in general, if you were to explain to a dummy, uh, what is cryptocurrency and why is it good? Or why is it what it is? What would you say? So there's, there's many angles. I mean, you know, talking about crypto um, gets you into talking about the entire macroeconomic situation. So there's so many angles that I actually want to start with kind of where you're at and ask you, you know, you've mentioned that usually you just think these people talking about crypto are just, uh, you know, crackpots. <laughs> but uh, so what? So what is what is your thinking? You know, up until now, you know, why are why is crypto crazy? Why are people who believe in crypto, um, you know, just just in, you know crazy, insane? Oh, okay, crypto. And here's, here's, here's the thing is it's kind of the people who talk about crypto kind of lead me into thinking that crypto is crazy. Um, it's right. kind of the anti-establishment people who are, right. oh, we've got a, I, I don't know how to explain them very well, but it's, it's the yeah. people that you think of when right. you're like, um, oh, we got to uh, down with the system. Oh, every yeah. side, both sides are wrong. And, uh, our situation will never be better. And so people that I generally think of are, uh, as wrong on other levels or just not necessarily wrong, but not yeah. thinking it through super, they take kind of a simple point right. and then they kind of expand upon it. That's kind of where I get my ideas of crypto is I kind of say, okay, it's a simple idea. Is it better than what we already have? Or is it just different and new and right. exciting? So there, there's a lot of um, sort of Austrian, sort of uh, Austrian uh, economic thinking kind of running through the, the Bitcoin community. There's definitely a lot of that, a lot of kind of libertarianism and kind of get out, yeah. you know, the and the Fed, get away from the government, don't let the government confiscate your, 
your 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 stuff. Uh, yeah, which is gold, but now it's Bitcoin for these for these. Exactly. Right. That's where. Yeah. Yeah. When yes. I think of, I think the guys who are buying gold and tell and stockpiling uh, rations and yeah. guns and ammunition. Ah, yeah. <laughs> and Bitcoin. Yeah. So let's talk about the Austrian economists. So the Austrian economists, uh, a lot of them are almost, or, or the people who subscribe to, you know, the Austrian um, thinking, um, a lot of them are sort of against the Federal Reserve and they will, they, they sort of moralize about it. They will say, mm-hmm. you know, the Federal Reserve is just printing, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars of, um, you know, what they would consider sort of fake money. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not backed by anything. It's not backed by gold. Um, it is simply, um, you know, there, there are, I've heard it called, um, you know, the, the money that we use. Mm-hmm. Um, the fiat money, money, the U.S. dollar, which the which the Federal Reserve um, is in control of expanding the supply of that that money. Um, I've heard it called IOU nothings. Mm-hmm. IOU nothing um, because their their liabilities is probably getting a little bit uh, too technical, but their their liabilities of the Fed. Um, which, you know, once upon, you know, uh, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, before we left the gold standard, those would have been IOUs for gold. Yeah. And so, you know, in the past, before uh, the Great Depression and FDR, um, you know, the Federal Reserve used to have a gold window that, um, you know, anybody could take their U.S. dollars to the local um, Federal Reserve Bank and exchange it for gold. Um, and they could also go to their local bank and the local bank could go to the Federal Reserve Bank. Um, so it was all, you know, backed up by gold. Gold was the base money and, and the, the paper notes were just uh, promises of gold. And mm-hmm. so it's a very interesting thing that happens, um, you know, during the Great Depression with FDR, um, FDR, you know, uh, closes the gold window, closes the, the retail gold window. So he says, you know, the U.S. dollar will no longer be exchangeable for gold um, for ordinary people, um, and he actually confisc- he actually confiscates the gold in the system. <laughs> Everybody is required to turn in their gold for a certain amount of, of paper money. <laughs> mm. um, so that's probably where it gets into the the, the mythos of the of the of the gold bug um, that did happen. Um, which is interesting to think about. After the, the Great Depression, um, the, the dollar is still based on gold um, under the Bretton Woods system, but it is only exchangeable for gold for other countries. Mm-hmm. And so within the country, everybody's supposed to be using the paper dollar. And, but then when you go and do international trade, um, you know, obviously other people, other countries have their own currency. And so in order to um, you know, make that trade, uh, make that exchange, then everything is, you know, the U.S. dollar becomes kind of the second tier base money and gold is still at the top. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, coming out of World War II, U.S. has most of the gold reserves in the world anyways. And so they set it up so that, um, you know, normally everybody just exchanges things for dollars and the other central banks, they s- save up U.S. dollars in their central bank. Um, and then every now and then, if they want to, then they can um, go to the U.S. and say, hey, I want, you know, gold for my dollars. Um, so give me, give, send me the gold. Mm-hmm. 
that continues until 1970 and you have the uh, you have inflation, you have the gold shock and then Nixon closes that gold window um, and says we're no, no longer going to give you know even other nations um, gold for their dollars. So from the 1970s until now um, it's it's fiat currency it's 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 paper. Uh, it's technically, you know, on balance sheets, it shows up, you know, on the Federal Reserve balance sheet, it shows up as a liability of the Federal Reserve. Mm -hmm. But that's a very special liability, which is not actually exchangeable for anything. So if you go to the Federal Reserve with the US dollar and say, give me my, you know, gold, they say, no, there's no gold. Yeah. <laughs> you can have another dollar yeah. um, in exchange for it. We can exchange dollars. Yeah. Um, but there's nothing else that is... Um, owed under the under the new rule under the new rules so it has value because we say it has value exactly exactly yeah, yeah. um it's it's really interesting to think about because um it's kind of what, how i've heard of it explained is that cash nowadays the dollar does not have value except for the fact that we believe it has value and because yeah. we believe it has value, it does have value. Yeah. And so each dollar is not necessarily a liability to the country. It's more of a liability of the companies within a country to yeah, produce stuff for people who turn that dollar in. Is that, am I explaining that well? Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's a great explanation. Um, you know, the dollar's value, I would consider it to be um, what what Soros calls uh, reflexive. It, it, it's reflexive value. It's, there's reflexivity involved in it. And, um, you know, it does have value in the market. And everybody, you know, for the most part, trusts that the, a dollar has value. They'll, they'll accept it for whatever they're selling or for their work or, or whatever. And they do that because they know that they will be able to turn around and give the dollar to somebody else and mm -hmm. somebody else will give something to them of value for it. So it has value because other people have believe it has value mm -hmm. and other people believe it has value because other people. <laughs> so the more, so the more people you can get to believe something has value, the more value it has. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. It has value because people believe it has value, um, and it. I mean that. That's one of those very interesting. I, I actually consider that um, you know, source idea of reflexivity and these um, sort of circular loops are actually quite common um, in economics. It's like uh, a lot of times when uh, uh, stock prices go up, a lot of times many of the participants um, are buying the stock because they think the price will continue to go up mm -hmm. and as a result of them buying the stock the price therefore continues to to go up wow this is a really good lead into cryptocurrency you got you got into reflexivity and how we believe something has value so we buy yeah. it and then it does have value and now we're getting into crypto which may yeah. be connected i see what you're yeah, doing absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, so, so is there anywhere you want to go more about the dollar before we go into um, Bitcoin or uh, cryptocurrency? So I guess the one thing I want to say now is that, you know, 
fundamentally from that perspective, the U.S. dollar currently, because it has no backing, um, you know, it, it's not fundamentally in a stronger position than, um, than a cryptocurrency. Um, it is, it is, you know, on the basis of, if you look at the market cap of the U S dollar, how many people are holding it for how much value, um, you know, how much market cap value the U S dollar has. You're saying in terms of being a fiat currency, they're both fiat currencies. They both have value in their proposition of not being anything. (laughs) They will both have value if the people accept them as having value and they both not have value if at some point in the future the people do not accept them as having value they could both um increase stay stable or or also you know lose value okay i think that's a really good explanation and i think i um not that i need to but i totally am on board and agree with you so far um all right. Cryptocurrency. Okay. So should we talk about blockchain first or should we talk about what do you think is important to go first? So there's, there's something I'm putting off to the, to the, for, to talk about later, which is how it, it feeds into the macroeconomics. And that, that's a huge yeah. thing. That's, you know, I have a whole body of thought that I'm calling capital consumption theory. Okay. Um, yeah. That relates to that. And that there's quite a lot of material there. Um, you know, the blockchain, just as a simple, you know, introduction for anyone who doesn't know uh, about blockchain, blockchain is, is basically a, a public ledger. Um, and so, uh, you, you know, if you go to the bank, um, something very interesting happens at the bank. Um, most people think that they have money at the bank and I would actually consider the way I would consider it, the way I would, I would think of it is that um, what you have at the bank is actually not money um, because, you know, you may take, you know, say 200 bucks and go deposit at the bank and the bank is not going to keep that 200 bucks for you and they're safe, ready for you to, to take it out. They're actually going to take that money and they're going to lend it to somebody else. Um, and after they lend it, then that person deposits it at another bank and so on and so forth. So it, it just, the dollar itself that you deposited actually um, just, you know, goes everywhere. Uh, Recycles it, it can, over and over and over and over right. again through the economy. But what you have at the bank, in fact, is a promise of money. So what you have at the bank is that the banker essentially, you know, writes down, um, you know, Zach today deposited 200 bucks. So his you know, account just went up now instead of having, um, you know, X amount of dollars in his account, he has X plus 200. Um, so you have essentially a ledger entry, which represents a promise by the bank that at any point in time that you want to um, withdraw that money and, and, and get some money out, the bank has promised that they will find some money for you somewhere and, and they will immediately uh, make that available to you the day that you that you come to the bank makes it's sense money. it's not actually money so bitcoin is a public ledger so the public ledger the idea behind it is that you you get rid of the centralized um entity you get rid of the bank and you just have a public ledger which the 
um, the miners basically maintain that ledger. Um, and it's set up so that nobody can mess with the books. And it's set up so that, you know, if I say, if I say, you know, Zach, I'm sending you $200 worth of Bitcoin. Um, and then I go in and, and make that transfer, then the ledger gets edited and it says $200 has now gone from, you know, Eddie's account to, to Zach's account. Um, you know, Zach's $200 richer uh, or, you know, 0.01 Bitcoin richer. Uh, Eddie is 0.01 Bitcoin poorer. And that is, that's the ledger. That's so the, the way books. The way I've heard it uh, explained as is instead of having one point of uh, of the record of how much each person has, like the bank is one point. Instead, they have it with blockchain. You have uh, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions, probably not millions, right? But millions of points of reference. Yeah. all talking to each other at the same time as to who has what amount at what time. And so in order to hack, it's actually a lot more difficult to hack a million PCs at once than it is to hack one extremely secure point. Um, and so I, I've, I've actually always been interested in what are these Bitcoin miners? And the way you've explained it to me, uh, they're actually the ledger keepers. They're the accountants. And I always thought like, oh, miners are like doing math problems for people. And yeah, some guy just really right. wants to know these math problems. Um, yeah, but apparently, yeah. no, they've been just like doing a bunch of record keeping. Right. So that actually makes a lot more sense. Thank you for explaining that because I've always thought about what are Bitcoin miners there? Yeah. Well, the, the name mining is like a little, it sort of leads people astray a little bit because you imagined like, you know, these miners yeah. like mining Bitcoin and yeah. pulling it out of the earth or something. Yeah. Um, but the system is actually set up so that um, you know, they are receiving the Bitcoin initially, but they're doing that in exchange for maintaining the network that allows the Bitcoin to to have um, to have meaning and for to, that allows that ledger. Um, they're getting compensated for their services. Exactly. Yeah. OK, well, now, hey, you know what? Right now, I've already learned one thing is that <laughs> miners do not have any pickaxes. All right. Bitcoin miners, no pickaxes. Got it. Got it. We're good. Right. We're good. All right. So uh, blockchain, thousands of points instead of one point. It's really cool. Some people are talking about using it for voting would be interesting. We'll see if that actually comes around. No one wants to do any reform to voting. We all want to just go and cast our one vote because that's the way it's always done. Okay, okay, okay. Let's not get political here. <laughs> so, I, so I think we can get into the macro, macroeconomics now. I mean, you know, we've got the basics. We've got, we know what Bitcoin basically is. We know what fiat currency basically is and how those stand to each other. Okay. And, and you know, if we go back to that, um, you know, those Austrian economics. Okay, uh, yeah, here's where I wanted to ask you one question. Are you pro-Austrian economics? Are you anti-Fed? Morally? So I'm not anti-Fed. Okay. Um, 
I, you know, I've looked at, um, you know, some of the Austrian economics, some of the thinking, and there is a lot that I that I agree with. But, you know, lately, um, you know, I've sort of evolved away from that thinking, and there's a lot that I also disagree with them. Okay. So, you know, to answer simply the question about the Fed, um, and this is a bit of a leap, which requires a whole, whole lot of explanation. Um, yeah. I, I don't think the Fed should be ended. I think the Fed should open an account for every, you know, man, woman, and child in the, in the, in the, in the nation. U.S. And, digital wallet. Right. And um, deposit, you know, a basic income, a universal basic income into everybody's account <laughs> every month. Um and which brings us a little bit to, you know, why do I think this? And I, I think that is actually an interesting leap, actually, to go from Austrian economics um, into, the, into the UBI and the, and the capital consumption theory. So Austrian economics, um, they have this idea that, that, uh, that, the, the, that the business cycles um, are a result of sort of overproduction of capital. Um, so we have to define capital first of all. So to, to, to say it simply, capital is, you know, um, productive investment. For example, like a factory. Yeah. So you spend you know, like $5 million building a factory and then ever, you know, ever after you've built it, um, that factory will help you produce like a million dollars worth of say milk. Um, per year. Um, Capital is something and, that helps you make something. Right. It helps you make okay. something. It increases productivity. Um, Austrians call it roundabout production because they, they talk about how, you know, before you had the factory um, in an earlier economy, everybody had a milk cow in their backyard. And then every morning they went and milked the cow for half an hour <laughs> uh -huh. to get a back bucket of milk. Um, and when you build the factory and you spend $5 million on it, that's a lot more trouble and a lot more um, investment than just having a cow in the backyard. But it is also much more efficient. So you end up having, you know, a, a bottle of milk, which is like a couple of bucks, which is much cheaper to you than having to spend half an hour every morning to get yeah. the milk and also having to take care of the cow, um, you know, all the time and keep it healthy and feed it and, and so on and so forth. Are you talking about efficient allocation of capital? Right. So the Austrians have this idea that you need the business cycle and that, you know, that, that the business people have to be sort of disciplined by regular shocks to the economy, which ma makes everything kind of go up and down and, and prevents them from overbuilding um, the capital. Hmm. So this is the point at which I've now departed from Austrian thinking. Yeah. Um, and the question I would ask someone who is in that, that thinking is what qualifies uh, um, uh, a capital investment as overinvestment? Mm. Um, and the classic Austrian answer is that it is investment that is not, um, you know, it's not rational. It, it is not appropriate for the, you know, for market conditions, mm. like basically, you build the factory, but then nobody wants to buy the milk yeah. or you're producing something that nobody wants to buy. Yeah. Um, and so, so you've wasted that, that that's kind of wasted capital, hmm. which sort of makes sense if you're talking about an individual business. Sometimes business people will say, 
you know, I have this great idea for this, you know, great widget. I'm going to build this factory. Everybody's going to love it. And then they build the factory and then people don't love it. And then they, they, they've wasted it. Turns out That's fidget spinners were just a trend for a little while and we didn't need to build 5 billion of them. Exactly. <laughs> but so that makes sense for an individual business. But if you apply that, you know, across the entire economy and say that, um, you know, you know, you've got all these different business people building different factories um, and different companies across the entire economy, but they've all overinvested. Um, you know, they were not supposed to build those factories. Um, the market does not support um, those factories existing. Mm -hmm. And you have to think about what does that mean? What does it mean for the market conditions to not support that level of capital in the in the entire economy. It could mean not a lot of things, right? It could mean a lot of things. But one thing that it, it doesn't mean, one thing that the individual case means that the, the economy-wide case does not mean is that the individual case basically means that you had a bad product. Like yeah. nobody wanted that particular product. Yeah. But if you get into the entire economy, you can no longer say that. You can't say that nobody wants any of the stuff that we're building in the entire economy that all the different business people and all the different factories and companies are making. Like everybody just doesn't want that stuff. That's, you know, that's not what they want. That doesn't make sense, right? Hmm. How can everybody, no, it's, it's, you know, that's not gonna, never going to happen. You must have a mind that thinks about macroeconomics more than I do, because I, I'm just struggling to imagine it in general, um, right. just thinking about a whole economy well, wanting. In the single case, yeah, I mean, that, it, well, it's weird. It's yeah. a weird thing. Like, what does that mean? That, yeah. I mean, you're, you're struggling. I, that means you get it. Yeah. <laughs> it makes sense. <laughs> Fair it enough. Makes sense in the individual case, because the product was... So, there was not good product market fit. There was something that you made something you thought it would be great, but everybody else is saying no. Yeah. But you can't have that with the entire economy where you you have every single factory, you know, on average is making, can make lots of stuff, but the market is saying no to everything. Like they don't want anything that, you know. Yeah. That, it seems like an overly simplistic point of view. Am so, I? So, and, and I, I think that and what happens, I think, which is which is sort of the, the place that we are at now, is that it's not that people don't want things. Um, yeah. It's that people don't have money to buy things. Yeah. So no, I'm yeah, that's that's exactly what I was thinking when you said, well, one of, one of the first, when you're like, what if we build something that people don't want? And I was like, well, what if, uh, like, the amount of money that people have changes, that the, the people who have money changes. What if uh, a lot of different things, what if all the rich people have the money and you made a uh, product for a bunch of poor middle-class people and they don't have the money to get it anymore? It, exactly. Exactly. Mm, we're, we're, we're getting there. We're getting to capital <laughs> consumption theory. So the, uh, so, you know, so the, you know, the, in the entire, so if you look at uh, capacity utilization um, in the economy, we're actually there. We're at um, a century low of like uh, 73%. It was as low as 67%. That is the lowest we've been capacity utilization in a hundred years um, mm. since the Great Depression. And it's actually 
um, the same number that we were at as we were going into the Great Depression was we were at about 70, 79% and then it dropped down to uh, 71% as we went into the Great Depression. We're actually in the same place as the Great Depression. And if you think about it again, um, you know, if we think about the entire economy as a household, yeah, um, okay. and you think that as a household, we collectively built all these factories, they can make all this stuff. But then afterwards we go, you know, we're only gonna run the factories like two thirds of the time, like one third of the time <laughs> we're just gonna, you know, it's just gonna sit there. Um, and it, it's not because it needs to sit there. It's just going to sit there, mm-hmm. um, you know, you know, essentially because, you know, we've somehow decided that we don't have money to buy the things in the factory, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, which doesn't make sense in the household. In the household model, it's very clear that that is just a waste. You could easily simply say collectively say, well, we're going to, you know, if we can make, you know, um, $30 trillion worth of GDP and products and services, we're going to mm-hmm. go ahead, we're going to go, 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 ahead, go ahead and make them. And then after we make them, you know, there's, you know, people are going to want them. I mean, you know, people are, you know, people, they, they still want more products and services. They're, they're not, we're not at post-scarcity. They're not, they don't have full bellies and, you know, full, they're not, um, there's actually huge parts of the population which are really struggling. People, um, people would buy these things if they had the money yeah. to buy these things. They don't yeah. have the money to buy these things because yeah. we tell them that their job is only worth blank amount of money so that it fits into the labor yeah. system. Right. Yeah. So you have an odd situation where you have the, the factories, which are only two-thirds capacity. They're kind of idling a huge amount of the time. And then you ha- also have like... Um, you know, large parts of the population, say a third of the population, which is really struggling and doesn't have income to buy things. And they would really like to, you know, be able to have, you know, enough, you know, housing and, and food and, and healthcare and, and whatnot. Cars. Uh, so the question is yeah. how, you know, how did we end up in this situation? And you said something earlier that, that reminded me of it, that goes into it. And I, and I think that, um, you know, the answer to, 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 to make a simple segue into the topic um, is that, the, that it's all at the top, <laughs> as yeah. Andrew Yang has said, yeah. the wealthy people. Yeah. But what exactly do the wealthy people have? Um, this is interesting. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's not important because wealthy people, they don't actually hoard money because yeah. money doesn't make money, doesn't make uh, a return. Cash doesn't make a return. So wealthy people, they don't just like, you know, kind of sop up all the money in the economy and then, and then put it under the mattress or hold it in their bank account. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, wealthy people actually do the opposite. They're actually usually very concerned with taking that money and investing it into mm-hmm. something and, you know, buying a company or buying a factory or, or real estate or, or whatever, or gold or, or whatever. Now, this is interesting because this is one of my theories. I don't have any like data. This is just a feeling. But one of my feelings is that we are, as a people, kind of over investing. Right. Um, yeah. All of absolutely. our money is tied up in investments. And when they're tied up in investments, what happens is a lot of people aren't spending money. And when people yeah. aren't spending money, the investments actually do kind of 
more poor poorly because yeah. people aren't buying. So we need more, we need less money in investments, more money in people's hands. Absolutely. Um, you know, just like we made just made clear when we talked about the household model, uh, investment is great, but it makes absolutely no sense to invest in productive capacity and then turn around and say, well, we don't have money. So for, unfortunately, we have the factory, but it's just going to sit there idle uh, a big portion of the time because, you know, because of something, because we don't have money somehow. Yeah, and yeah. So the one of the things, okay, let me let me say this one thing. I got excited, not excited, but um, I saw one of the best uh, things to do in this scenario that we're feeling in the economy right now is one of the best investments is selling things to rich people. And yeah. like one of the top 10 richest dudes is Arnaud or Arnois or the French guy who sells luxury products. Yeah. And it just yeah. makes sense because yeah. the best way to make money is to get rich people to buy your stuff, not poor people. Yeah. Once you understand this, there's lots and lots of things in the economy that will that will start to make sense and you'll you'll never be able to unsee it you'll like you'll be like you know this all makes sense it never made sense before i understood this but now that i see how this works it all makes sense okay but <laughs> i've taken the red so pill thank you question, how does this happen why is the why is the income all you know why is the income um stuck at the top uh, among the wealthy so to do that, we have to kind of analyze society as, as two parts. So one part is that wealthy capitalists, um, they own lots of factories, et cetera. And then the large part, uh, larger part of society is uh, the worker consumer. Um, and they basically, you know, they work, uh, they make labor income, they work, they make income through selling their labor. Uh, and then they take that income and most of that income uh, goes to their consumption needs. So they spend most of what they make. A worker consumer, um, you know, if they save and invest a great deal, um, they reach a point eventually, they can reach a point eventually that uh, Robert Kiyosaki calls financial freedom, where you have enough investments that your investments will fund all of your, all of your consumption needs. Mm -hmm. um, and once they reach that point, um, they tend to sort of skyrocket hmm. because you know, if you can make all of the, if you can, you know, make enough money on your investments to fund everything, um, you can usually make a little bit more, or you can save a little bit of money, you can spend a little bit less, there's going to be an excess, there's going to be some savings. And you take that savings, and then you invest it, which means that next year, you're going to make even more money, mm -hmm. which means you'll have even more savings, mm -hmm. and then you'll invest it again. And what so you're you describing seems to be a snowball that rolls yeah, down a hill. Different. Yeah. Like, uh, right, exactly. Yeah. Like uh, Warren Buffett talks about the, the snowball effect. And, uh -huh. and he, you know, he did that. I mean, he started off with relatively like a, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars. And, you know, now 50 years, 60 years later, you know, he's a uh, multi-billionaire. Yeah. Um, and, and if you calculate it, um, that, you know, he made basically about a 25% return. And if you take a few hundred thousand dollars and you make a 25% return on it for 50 years, it absolutely, it, you know, yeah, <laughs> it goes. To, it turns into a ridiculous amount of money. That's what happens when people become wealthy capitalists. But most people are still, you know, worker consumers. 
they mm -hmm. they make their money by 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 selling their labor by having a job or whatever and then they spend most of their money usually because they don't they don't make that much um and so usually they're you know those two things are pretty fairly tight mm -hmm. for most people so, so we're separating society into these two parts the wealthy capitalists and the worker consumer and you know from the things that we were just talking about these two you know sections of society they basically represent the um the capital and the consumption of society so there's way more worker consumers so much most of the consumption is done by the worker consumer mm -hmm. um and, and and also you know especially you know when worker consumers when they get income usually they spend it but when the when the when the wealthy capitalist gets more income um you know, they already have their spending needs met like a thousand times over. They just turn right back around and they invest that extra income again. Mm -hmm. So you end up with a situation in society where you have an imbalance, um, too much money in the hands of the wealthy. And, and this is, you know, like, uh, you know, it's happening year over year. Right. This is yeah. where we're at. We're at a, a level of peak um, inequality and, 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 and rising inequality. Um, and when that happens, when, when the wealthy have all the income in society, um, they spend all of their income on investing in that productive capital. Uh -huh. but the problem with that situation is that the worker consumers are the ones who are supposed to um, you know, buy the product of yeah. that productive capital. Um, and when they don't have that money, which right now they don't empirically, they don't have enough money. They don't have as much money. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of inequality. They don't have very much money rel relatively. Um, then they have trouble consuming the product of that productive capital. So when that happens, one of the things that happens is that the market rate of return and the interest rates they go they go down um so we don't want to talk about interest rates too much do we i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna say we don't need to define interest rates and that oh, kind of stuff because that is i mean it's gosh it's 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 the it's the biggest it's the largest part of the of the of the whole theory yeah okay um, all right so interest so let's do a let, so let's do an introduction on on interest rates so interest rates, you know, most people know about interest rates like you put money in a bank or like you buy a bond and, you know, after like a year you get uh, a few percent or something. Um, interest. Let's say my uh, my house loan is at 4%. Right, 4%. Yeah. So the bank lent you, you know, all this money to buy a house and they want, um, you know, 4%. You're going to have to pay them 4% on the money you owe them every year um and so a classic question is you know why is that so why do you have to pay the bank why does the bank require you to to pay money interest on the money that they lend you um and the you know the classic answer the standard answer which i you know i think is correct um is is the time value of money that money now uh is worth more than money later and the reason it would be worth more now than it is later um, becomes clear when you think about capital, when you think about that milk factory that we're talking about, um, 
it earlier. Um, so if you have $5 million, you know, that say the bank lent you at 4% interest, you can go and build a milk factory and the milk factory will produce a million dollars worth of milk every year. So in five years, it's produced 5 million. In 10 years, it's produced 10 million. Um, the milk factory has in our, you know, hypothetical example, it has a 20% rate of return. So you put 5 million into the investment and then every year it gives you back 20% of your initial investment. So because capital has this rate of return, which is like a natural, that's like a natural effect. I mean, that's the effect of building a factory is that you, you have a, you have a return on that factory going into the future. Um, because of that, um, that will translate into a, a time return on money. Because if someone lends you the money, that $5 million, that allows you to build a factory. So it makes sense that you would be willing to pay, say, 4% for that money because after your investment you after you invest it then you get 20 percent for your troubles you keep 16 percent. you pay four percent back to the bank and and everybody's happy you give and, somebody and, money you get money back you get more money right. back if you have money yeah. now you get right. more money later right there's a there's a natural um it's not a property of money it's really a property of capital as soon as you have capital which is productive capital and it, it, it generates some type of productivity benefit over time, then you're going to have this effect where um, having money in your pocket, having money, you know, upfront is, is going to be worth um, paying for. It's going to be worth paying for that money. So that so in the market, there's going to be an interest rate. But to come back to our capital consumption theory and the scenario that we're in. Uh, we're in this scenario where the wealth inequality is high, the wealthy capitalists have all this, all this money and the worker consumer does not have very much money uh, comparatively, you're going to get into a situation which looks very much like what the Austrian economists were calling um, overinvestment. Mm -hmm. Because the wealthy capitalist has all that money, they can do lots and lots of investment. They can build lots of factories, mm -hmm. whatever. Um, but because the worker consumer does not have money, after they built the factory, the consumer is not going to really be very good at being able to buy everything that the factory makes. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they're going to be like, oh, ha, ha, ha. It's because of this naturally occurring Austrian economic theory that, oh, it just happens. Right? right. And then well, – Right. So, so in the wealth inequality scenario, what ends up happening is that the return on that factory is going to keep going down yeah. as your wealth inequality goes up. As yeah. people don't have money to buy the product, then when you build the factory and you try to sell it and it's not very easy to sell, maybe you have to lower the prices. Either way, the, the, the return is going to go down. And especially the return is going to get, go down because remember, the wealthy – they have all this income, they have all this money, and they're looking everywhere to, uh, to invest that money. Yeah. So there is a, a greater supply of investment funds and a lower demand for real investment, mm -hmm. uh, a lower demand for, for factories, because when the factory is built, then you know, they, they can't sell the product. So that translates into businesses saying, you know, looking at this and, and saying, hey, you know, look, our factories are already, you know, idle one third of the time. Why in the world would I build more factories 
when my factories are already, you know, I'm not even using the ones that I have. Yeah. So why build more? Yeah. So they're going to be turning back to the providers of the financial capital and they're saying, <sighs> you know, we don't need this money. We don't want it, um, even though you're going to give it to us cheaply. So do you see that in the so market for there's for a fun? difference? There's there's real demand that people would actually want. And then there's yeah. actual demand because of what people actually have the money to buy. And exactly. between the two, we aren't actually estimating what the actual demand is correctly. And so it right. makes investment to meet this demand instead of investment to meet this demand. Exactly. Right. The, 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 the business people, they can't build the factory um, just because people want the product. They, they need the people to, to pay for the product also. <laughs> yeah. And the people, if the people can't do it, then they, they can't build the, the factory. So does it make sense that that changes the market for investable funds and you end up with the price of investable funds going down, down, down because the demand for factories, demand for It kind of seems like everyone's losing a little bit here. Absolutely. Everyone is losing. Or losing, losing in that they could be doing much better. Not necessarily losing. Like rich people are right. still really rich, but they could be even richer. They could actually be richer in real terms. Yeah. Um, and something really funny happens here, because, um, and and we're now we're gonna go. You know, we're gonna talk about more stuff. Okay. Um, do you know about? Do you know about uh, bond prices? Do you oh know gosh. How bond prices rise when <laughs> interest rates go down. Yeah, I think so. Because interest rates mean that. Okay, so bonds are priced by interest rates, so you make more money when interest rates go down. Just generally. Right. So, so I, I don't think we need to necessarily know, but it's like bond prices and interest rates. When interest rates go right. down, bonds go The down. prices go up. Oh, prices go up. Yeah. So, so let me tell you the reason that happens. So say you have a 3% bond. Uh, so this bond is like a 10-year bond. For the next 10 years, it's going to be paying you 3% interest on your you know, $10,000 investment. Um, 3% interest. Um, but then suddenly the market rate, the interest rate goes down to say 1%. Um, but you already have that bond in your hand and the bond is already set up. It's designed that it, it gives you 3%. So I'm so, making, I'm making more money than the person who's making 1% because exactly. they're, they're a sucker and I got it at the right price. Exactly. exactly. Okay. So your $10,000 is giving you like, um, um, $300 a year. Good thing I'm not an accountant. But if somebody else wanted to make $300 a year um, in income, they would have to buy a $30,000 bond because now that the interest rates are only 1%, that's how much they would have to buy. So what happens is that $10,000 bond in your hand, if you go onto the market and you sell that bond, you would actually be able to get way more than $10,000 for it. You'd be able to get like, maybe $25,000 for it. Um, you wouldn't get quite 30,000 because maybe, you know, you've already got two years off of your bond or whatever. But, but the bond, the point is that when the interest rate goes down, the bond price actually goes up. 
Makes sense. Yeah. So what I would say is happening in the economy right now is that, um, you know, interest rates, they also work themselves, all the financial markets, including stocks, for example. Um, so when Warren Buffett, when he tries to calculate how much a company's worth, um, he's generally going to compare how much the company can earn over the next 10 years. And he compares that to almost like a, it's almost like a bond. Yeah. Like, oh, if I bought $10,000 worth of stock, you know, yeah. would it earn $300 every year for the next 10 years? Yeah. If it did, then that would be, you know, about the same, like if, if a bond did the same Two thing. Two different investing opportunities. Right. And yeah. But they're sort of comparable through their returns. Correct. Okay. Uh, except the company return might be, the earnings might be slowly increasing. Um, it's a little more uncertain. Um, the bond is for sure. This company, you don't really know. But they're still, but but finance professionals, investors, they still compare the two things. Yeah. So the same thing that happens to bond prices um, is going to also happen to stock prices at the same time. So when the bond, when the market rate interest rate goes down to one percent, or it was three percent, you know, previously, then your bond is going to appreciate. Your ten thousand dollar bond is going to be worth more, and a stock is also going to be worth more. Mm-hmm. Because the stock, um, you know, to get a bond that would give you as much money as the as the company as the stock did, um, you know, has that that number has just gone up by three three times. Like you know, at the one percent interest rate, you would have to get the thirty thousand dollar bond. So your stock is also going to experience almost a threefold like increase. Hmm. And so that that that's actually, I don't know how how much you follow financial markets, but um, that is sort of where we are in financial markets. Like s- stock prices are actually super, super high, um, especially for growth companies compared to their earnings. Mm-hmm. Because of interest rate being low, everything because, else high. Exactly, exactly, okay. exactly. All right, so how do we connect this to cryptocurrency are we there yet yes so we're so we're almost there so the picture we have i don't know what you think of the picture we have but the picture we have is is a really of an economy that is sort of unhealthy sort of messed up in this particular way for multiple reasons for multiple reasons but especially the root cause actually being basically wealth inequality inequality yeah and having the wealthy having lots of money worker consumer not having enough money um as a result and not necessarily and this is probably good to say too not necessarily a moral objection to these things but an actual like functionality problem with rich people having lots of money and poor people not a lot of people kind of say like oh poor people should have more money because it's morally correct we're not saying that we're saying it's actually bad for economics for a market economy to run efficiently. Right. Okay. Anyway, wanted to make that point real quick. Good point. We're not even worrying about morals yet. We're just putting them to one side and just looking at what happens to the economy when we get in this situation. And, you know, what happens is that real investment goes way down. Um, You get these, you get this appreciation in in asset prices, which is one of those things that Austrian economists, they rail about, they rail against that. They said, oh, the Federal Reserve is 
putting interest rates down way too low. So that's giving you these huge bubbles mm-hmm. and the bubbles are going to pop. Yeah. And, and there's, you know, there's sort of, I think they're wrong about the root cause. They haven't realized that the root cause is the underfunded worker consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're right that those low rates give you, you know, financial bubbles. That the that low rates are, are not solving the problem. Right. They're not very doing very well at solving the problem. It's kind of like you have, you know, not enough, um, you know, money at the bottom of the economy and you're kind of jamming money into the top of the economy and trying hoping. to get it to the bottom, but it doesn't get to the bottom very well. And it just blows up at the top. It's just like kind of inflating at the top. And, and, and it's blowing up on the top and raining down all this crap on the bottom. <laughs> well, what, I mean, what you're getting is asset price inflation and, and you still, you see real estate, um, yeah. you know, it, it's across real estate, bonds, stocks. At this point, it's everything. It's sort of, um, you know, Ray Dalio has said it's an, it's an everything bubble. Hmm. Um, you know, you know, in 2007, we had the financial crisis, which was supposedly because which was because of the real estate bubble. Yeah. Um, but if you look at what happened since then, we have reinflated that real estate bubble. Mm-hmm. It's actually higher and larger than it was before. And then we also have a stock bubble. And then we also have a bond bubble. Um, the co- entire economy is, is kind of in this really odd place right now. You're um, painting a dark picture here, Eddie. I'm not sure I <laughs> like hearing about bubbles. I thought yeah, bubbles were nice. Yeah. And you and and you get these really weird things happening. For instance, like uh, like with your GameStop, which you know, with you know, which where you have um, excess idle com- capital running around because it doesn't have a productive outlet hmm. because it can't cannot because building factories doesn't make sense in this economy, and instead it just you know finds different assets to inflate, um, and sometimes and right now with you know sort of like. Re- you know, ridiculous effects. Um, you know, you have a company that, uh, objectively speaking, they're facing bankruptcy. They're in a terrible industry. They're mm-hmm. in the business of selling something at a store um, that, because of technology, can now be kind of you know can be downloaded straight to your device. Yeah. Um, it's by no means a company that is objectively worth um, nearly as much as um, you know it, the price you know got to. Yeah. Last week or the week before that. Um, no, that I, I mean, that's it's interesting to think about GameStop in those terms because a lot of people think about the moral idea of um, sticking it to the man. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's interesting to think about that the money that went into GameStop is actually just idle money that should be going into other places but it's not because there's not necessarily a place for it right well i mean it's framed as sticking into the little guy sticking to the man but the thing is that price stocks you know they don't have um, rules about who can buy them or sell them at what times and so you know there are you absolutely are you know have you know hedge fund managers or or hedge funds or or whatever um, that will also be profiting off of the stocks um, prices going going way up. Um, yeah, and it's it is uh, it's it's generally it's the type of thing that will tend to happen when your interest rates are at zero. 
-hmm. and money, you know, in, in terms of interest is basically free anyways. Um, you, you have that. It's not just a GameStop thing. Um, you know, I, I keep track of lots of different stocks and um, you, you see it happening across the entire market. Um, you know, I have a stock, uh, uh, I, I'm an iRobot, IRBT. Um, and, you know, the, that same week it was, it was going up, <laughs> you know, 10, 20% a day. Um, <laughs> I, I've been, you know, uh, investing in stocks since um, college about 20 years ago. Um, and in these 20 years, I've, I've not seen, um, I've not seen this type of action in the market in general. Hmm. Uh, I was, I'm not old enough to have been in the market during the nineties. So I don't know personally, I'm not personally able to compare it to the 1990s, uh, tech bubble, but mm -hmm. I can tell you that for the last 20 years, um, you know, a normal thing is for a stock to go up and down like a percent, 2%, maybe like 5% is a big deal. Um, nowadays you, you pull up your iPhone and you look at the different stocks on your list and it's like 20%, 50%, 100%. This is, uh, this is absolutely crazy. It's the wild west, you know, rational at all. It's, that's crazy. That's crazy that, that, um, you know, and, and, and you understand if you understand capital consumption theory, you know, that's what happens when you take the interest rate down to zero and, it in no you know the earnings are the earnings stream no longer matter anymore uh and it becomes just an appreciation game mm -hmm. it becomes an unstable bubble game where the way to profit in this market the the way to make the most money in this market is to just play that game is to just get on the next meme and have it go up you know meme yourself into value and then get out at the top yeah, that's going to be the best money that you can make in the market instead of, um, you know, investing in a, a company that builds a factory that makes like 20 percent, um, you know, a year hmm. um, in real returns. All right. So now cryptocurrency. Right. So. So uh, now, now here's my kind of question, then yeah. is cryptocurrency the is it actually a good thing or is it just a mean to make money on? So, or is it both? Right. So the thing about investing that makes it hard is like, if you, if you think about those stocks, those company stocks, the hard part is that it depends on the future and no one has a crystal ball. No one knows exactly what's going to happen a year, you know, five years, 10 years down the road. Um, so everything in, in, in investing in finance, um, sort of depends on the future. There's like a built-in uncertainty to it. So cryptocurrencies, there is potentially a future that from the situation that we're in today, um, potentially you can, you know, if people keep saying cryptocurrency, um, I don't know if we know how to share screens right now. <laughs> I mean, uh, you have to allow it, which you might not be able to, you might not know how to do right now. If you can, we'll show it. But if you can't, then I'll just talk about it. All right. I think. Oh, I've nice. Done it. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, here we are. Share. Okay. All right. Can you see that? 
I can see that. Okay. So this is our, our Bitcoin chart. Um, and let's go out. Let's look at the big picture. So this is from 2012 to now. All right. It's a logarithmic scale. So you see that, you know, the like, um, you know, like a fivefold increase is the same amount. So three to 15 is this much, 15 to, um, you know, 75 is this much. It's, it's a exponential increase. So it's gigantic is what you're saying. This is gigantic. Yes. This is, you know, so Bitcoin uh, in 2012 is like four bucks. Okay. And it's, it's a super like nobody knows, you know, nobody's heard of what the heck is a Bitcoin in 2012. Um, I think the first time I heard of a Bitcoin was maybe like around, uh, maybe around here um, in 2013. And, and I, I just read this random article that said Bitcoin was up like, you know, 300% this year. <laughs> and I was like, what the heck is a Bitcoin? Hmm, that's mm -hmm. kind of interesting. But, you know, I only saw the one article. Um, didn't you know think too much of it um and it you know it was at a stage back then when you know you probably had to be a little bit of a tech head to to know how to 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 get some bitcoin in your hands anyways it 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 keeps you know it crashes it goes up it crashes it goes up but the entire history is basically um you know from 2012 to now is basically the history of going from four dollars per bitcoin up mm -hmm. to forty thousand dollars per bitcoin um with a lot of volatility in the middle where you're you know you get these you know bull markets um they they peak out and they crash and they come down 80 percent, but then you get another bull market uh, that goes even higher crashes but it's still higher than the last bear market um and it's it's a picture of of you know up and to the right yeah um, to go back to reflexivity, you know, everybody who is watching the Bitcoin prices, um, you know, whether they are sophisticated or not sophisticated, sooner or later, they're going to be watching it and being like, you know, wow, if I bought that three years ago, <laughs> mm -hmm. how much money would I have now? You know, if I bought that three years ago, how much would I, you know, this is going to, people are going to see the, the price going up. And when people, you know, there's certainly a lot of uncertainty and doubt and fear um, about a about something as new as Bitcoin, and a lot of questions, a lot of difficulty making sense of what this this Bitcoin actually means. Um, but generally speaking, the more people know what Bitcoin is, and the more people that are noticing, wait a second. And, you know, if I bought it three years ago, it was what price, you know, 3000 and, and today it's what price, you know, 47,000 um, and rising They're, you know, they're going to be like, you know, maybe I should buy a little bit of that Bitcoin, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so the so one possible future is that this continues um, you know, until, so I, I guess we can stop the screen sharing now. I uh, just watched Bitcoin go up $200 in the past five minutes. Oh yeah. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's taking off, um, today. It's, it's kind of fun to watch. And, and what, how does that make you feel? <laughs> I don't like it. I don't like it at all. You don't like it because you're not in it. 
but yep, that's true. That's and, true. And, and there's a little bit of regret. It's like, hey, you know, if I bought it last week, you know, it was here, and and now <laughs> I could have made, um, you know, ten percent. So, but this week. is one thing that I argue about Bitcoin is yeah. I say some of the th- a lot of the things that people list as benefits i actually count as negatives they say it's not controlled by the government it doesn't have blah 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 it doesn't have it's decentralized and people like to say it's decentralized and that's inherently better and one thing that i kind of think is it's not necessarily better i think of the people um i think that one of the things that i think about crypto yeah. is that there still are people making decisions on what Bitcoin is doing. It's just the owners of Bitcoin who are doing it. And so to me, this is like hyper capitalist. Like if you were a libertarian capitalism who thought that the market was always right in everything that it does, then Bitcoin is a dream come true. Yeah. But if you're somebody who thinks, hey, maybe we need to like – you know, monopolies happen. Uh, the market's not always efficient. We need to have rules on how these things work because it, yeah. it, it, it sometimes it doesn't actually work well. Then I, right. I'm wondering, well, maybe I don't invest in Bitcoin, not because it's not a good um, investment itself, yeah. but yeah. more because it's a moral, I, I think for me, it's a moral statement that I believe that Bitcoin, if it ever were to replace or to become a real currency, it would be a very bad thing. Yeah, it would, I mean, it would be, I don't know that it would necessarily be bad overall. I think it would have many different effects and some of them would potentially be good and some of them would be potentially bad. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is very interesting is, again, from capital consumption theory, um, you know, the economy actually needs more consumers. Um, it needs more money in the hands of the consumer worker. And, you know, you and I are both Yang gang, right? I, I think we're both still Yang gang. And, um, you know, we're in favor of a universal basic income, you know, that, you know, probably the easiest way for that to happen is for the government to, 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 to make it, make it happen, make it so. Um, in the absence of that, you know, because, you know, it seems to, it's a little bit slow. It's actually seems to be much closer than it was a year ago or two years ago. Yeah, no, um, absolutely. The cash payments, um, we're slowly making progress, but it, you know, it's, it, who knows how much longer it will be. Um, but on the other hand, the market, the economy actually does need hand, money in the hands of, of the consumer. I think it's actually fascinating that um, Bitcoin is now within probably one bull market of being um, as having as much market cap as the U.S. dollar uh, or as gold, and. If, if it does that, um, that will be, you know, a huge increase in the effective money supply. Um, 
And while you and I think that everybody should have, you know, basic income every month, um, and that would fix, and I think through, you know, it, with the capital consumption theory, that that would fix the economy um, in, in many, many ways. It would, it would cause the bubbles. It would kind of, instead of popping the bubbles, it would like fill in the bubbles where the company's earnings would, would actually go up so that the stock prices actually make sense. Um, whereas right now they have like no earnings and but huge prices, which is a little bit unstable. Um, but if that doesn't happen, Bitcoin to some degree will actually fill in that role because you have all these like millennials. Remember the boomers have all the money right now. The millennials don't have any money. And the, the millennials are the ones, you know, investing in Bitcoin. Well, and see, so then that's what I wonder, because like I had half a million dollars. Like um, I saw the other day, you have money. What I wonder is who are the holders of Bitcoin? Because some people think that it's millennials, but I saw the other day that a guy invested four hundred and seventy-five million of his investments yeah. into Bitcoin, yeah. and it's, yeah. you know, does that mean that? That's we're putting we're putting more what what my question is is who's in control the person in my understanding is with most cryptos it's the holders of the cryptocurrency who are in control and then i wonder who are the people in control of the currency or who own the currency and what my guess is and, I, you know, this is different from your guess. You're saying that millennials and the people who don't have money own Bitcoin. But I wonder is are the people who actually do have a lot of control in the government already by being rich and having influence and that kind of stuff. Do they also own Bitcoin and have influence over Bitcoin? And is it really so decentralized or is it actually even more centralized than our government processes where we hold real power in the terms of votes. Yeah. So there's, there's multiple things that are, that are true. Um, and it's a complex picture. Um, uh, in terms of the control question, um, you know, it's, it's actually the miners uh, acting collectively that, that control it. So if they wanted to make any changes to the cryptocurrency, um, at least with Bitcoin, uh, it would be the miners that would have to um, all basically all agree and and say we're going to you know kind of upgrade Bitcoin to this new protocol, and enough of them would have to agree for that for that to work. And and, and sometimes what happens is that they disagree, and when they disagree, then you actually get a fork. So what happens is that you know say seven of them seventy percent agree. 30% disagree, the 30% go off and, 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 and build and fork it and, and make a different cryptocurrency. Um, for example, Bitcoin Cash is a fork off of Bitcoin. And so those 30% of miners, you know, end up in control of the new, you know, forked currency, Bitcoin Cash, and the 70% end up in control of the, of the original Bitcoin. And so it has that sort of, um, it's somewhat democratic um, among the miners uh, of hmm. the cryptocurrency for Bitcoin. And, and then each cryptocurrency has its own protocols. So that hmm. is true of Bitcoin. It's different for, um, you know, Ethereum. It's, it's different for every different cryptocurrency. Every cryptocurrency has its own set of rules and it has its own rules 
about how the rules can be changed. But so it is a libertarian's dream. I mean, in that you do have um, it, it's somewhat crap, very libertarian way in that if yeah, you I don't think... like Bitcoin, then you don't buy it. Okay. Sorry, I lost you there oh, for a second. I, right. What was the last thing you heard? Oh, no, I, I got everything. Your video was out, so oh, we're paused. Yeah. So you're good. Right, so it is. So, you know, it is sort of a libertarian, uh, you know, sort of democratic in a certain way in that, right, if you don't like it, you don't buy it and you don't participate. And and so the people who bought Bitcoin Cash, they bought Bitcoin Cash. The, the miners who kept doing Bitcoin Cash, they kept doing it. And, you know, it's, not, it's certainly not... It, it is not a, you know, egalitarian, like where everybody gets the same thing. It's like everybody gets um, whatever they go for with the resources that they have. Um, and you're right that there is, you know, they've looked at studies of, you know, how, how much Bitcoin is in each Bitcoin wallet in, in, in aggregate. Mm -hmm. And it, 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 it does have the same, you do still have the same um, uh, distribution. Like, uh, distributions yeah where some people are really rich in yeah. bitcoin yeah. and a lot of people are not very rich in bitcoin yeah um so you do have that um i do think that if you look at men millennials versus boomers you're going to have a lot more millennial uh, particip uh participation than, than boomer participation fair enough um, you know because technology generally generally that way bit. um but but definitely you still have distribution um, inequality. That's, that's definitely true. Yeah. Okay. Well, so I hate what I was saying is that it, it sort of imperfectly, it sort of solves the, uh, inadequate income problem in a very, uh, like un, uneven way, like this, <laughs> a very spotty way. Some people loot, you know, win big. Some people, you know, end up, you know, they bought like a, they mined like, you know, twenty bitcoins, you know, ten years ago as uh, for for fun, and now they're like, you know, now they're now they're really rich, and and some people lose out, um, and some people. So it's so it's sort of, um, I mean, it's sort of that that type of a picture. Okay, well, hey, you know, I have really enjoyed this conversation. I think we can actually talk a little bit more but yeah. not today. Um, I, I, I would love to uh, continue, but um, I'd like to say, yeah. am I, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. I can hear you. Um, I'd like to say that I need to stop for today. Very good. Very okay. Good.